our questions are up on the screen. Take note of, of, of those as we will be uh, answering these uh, together at the end of our, uh, at the end of our time uh, uh, together. And so I encourage you to take note of these so that you're prepared to, uh, to answer them. Uh, also, would like to encourage you that this is a wonderful time to uh, get notes, a notepad and some paper and, and uh, maybe even ask that for Christmas if you need to. And so you can write the questions down so that at the end you'll be prepared to, uh, to answer the questions uh, at the end. All right, so let me first catch us up to our, to our passage this morning. A couple weeks ago we started chapter 7 of, of the Gospel of Luke. And what we saw in the very first part of Luke was Jesus' encounter with some friends of a centurion, all right, a Roman soldier who uh, was uh, a commander of a certain sized group of, of Roman soldiers. And he asked Jesus, he was making a request to Jesus, to heal his favorite servant who was about to die. And at the end of the story, uh, Jesus is on his way to heal the guy, and the centurion sends another group of friends to go to Jesus and just say, Jesus, I am unworthy for you to even come to my home, to see me, to deal with me, to even talk to me. I know who you are. I know the kind of authority that you have. I possess a somewhat of a sort of authority as well. I know how to exercise authority. You as the Son of God know how to exercise authority. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was marveled at the faith of this, uh, this Roman centurion and Jesus heals, this, uh, heals his servant. Great passage. Last week we, we looked at another amazing passage where, where Jesus and his boys come up to the town of Nain, a small town, uh, and they encounter a funeral that's taking place. And Jesus sees this, uh, this, the mother who is now not only childless but also a widow. And, and long story short, Jesus has compassion on her and he speaks directly to her, and then he speaks directly to the dead young man and raises him to life. What a beautiful story of the resurrection. What a beautiful story of the power of Jesus and the hope that we have, our future coming hope. And we, we, we sang about that this morning. This is what Christmas in many ways for us is all about, is to look to him and his coming. So what a great miracles that we have. But it leads us up to our passage this morning. As we start chapter 7, verse 18, and so on, we're going to go all the way to 35. We're going to take a big chunk uh, this morning. We're going to cover a massive topic um, that we will, of course, will continue to unearth over the years we have together. Um, but a massive topic that in some way or another is something that we all struggle with. So, I can, I can kind of guarantee you that if you're in tune with the Spirit and in tune with what the Lord is doing in His Word and, and in tune with growing in the Lord and being sanctified, that um, this is something that we will all struggle with. So not to, not to tune out this morning. And, and that is the idea of the, the struggle of unbelief. And I'm going to define that for you, what that actually, um, what that means. And so we have a lot of work, so we've got we to dive in. So, so helping us understand what unbelief uh, means... Um, so that we all get on the, the same page, I want to uh, use the definition of unbelief given by John Piper in his sermon series, Battling Unbelief. Uh, highly recommended to you. Go to DesiringGod.org, type in Battling Unbelief, and there's a sermon series from 1988. I was eight years old. 
when he preached this glorious message, these glorious messages. And, and this is what he says about unbelief. He says, All the sinful states of our hearts are owing to unbelief in God's superabounding willingness and ability to work in us in every situation of life so that everything turns out for our good. Anxiety, misplaced shame, indifference, regret, covetousness, envy, lust, bitterness, impatience, despondency, pride, all of these spouts from the root of unbelief and the promises of God. So what is he saying? He is saying that unbelief is the root cause of all sin. We can, we can, we can dig the root all the way down of what all sin goes to, and it all goes to the same place. It all funnels out of the same place, and that is our unbelief. All sin. Unbelief is whenever we do not trust or believe in God's ability, God's sufficiency, and the satisfaction that we can find alone in God and in His Word. And that He alone can work in every place of our life, no matter the situation, no matter the temptation, no, no matter the fear, the doubt, whatever it may be, we can trust, into the, trust the Lord. But unbelief then says, no, you can't, but you can trust this instead. You can, you can believe this instead. So what does this tell us about unbelief? What does this tell us about what the answer to unbelief is? How do we then attack unbelief? How do we battle our unbelief? Well, unbelief is a heart issue. And it's very good for us to know that. Because this is what Jesus preaches to, the heart. Jesus doesn't preach to the external. He preaches to the, to the heart. That's what the, the gospel does. The gospel is the issues of our heart. It deals with our, our hearts first. And unbelief is at the, the root of our hearts. And that is what we're going to see Jesus doing this morning in addressing unbelief. He will correct the unbelief of John, John the Baptist, that is. And then from the responses of people around us. He's going to expose and show us a, a deeper side of, of unbelief that, is, that, that leads to an active and even a passive rejection of Jesus. A rejection of God, a rejection of even John we've seen, and of the Gospel. So let's look to Luke chapter 7. Let's read together starting in verse 18. Everybody with me? Luke chapter 7. Starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent him them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that very hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, when, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury or in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the, fl the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen. So our passage this morning can be broken up in four parts. The first part we see is the situation of John the Baptist, where he is physically and where he is spiritually, mentally and emotionally. And now, John, the cousin of Jesus, this really unique individual, John the Baptist, who stood out as a very unique guy by his lifestyle, by his clothes, by the message that he preached, even the very things that he ate and drank, spoke of his unique life. He taught boldly, boldly a message of repentance to, to turn from sin and to turn to God, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's the one who proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who baptized the Son of God. And now John, who eventually in his ministry made some people angry, including the king, made Herod angry because of the wickedness that John the Baptist pointed out, and he got locked up. So now John has been imprisoned for a number of months, maybe even up to a year, all the way through the beginning of Jesus' ministry to this point until he eventually will die at the hand of Herod, all to appease his illegitimate wife, Herodias. But while he was languishing in prison to rot unjustly, John became more and more confused about what he was hearing about Jesus and his ministry. And, and see, that's what chapter 7 shows us. Chapter 7, chapter 7 shows us that, that John is hearing about a Roman centurion servant getting healed. Chapter 7 is showing us that 
not only is a Roman centurion servant getting healed, but a young woman, or a woman's young son is being raised from the dead in a very insignificant town, a nowhere. Now that's not to say that John doesn't feel compassion or mercy for those who need compassion and mercy, but these aren't the things that, that, that flowed from John's mouth when he preached about the Messiah. In Luke chapter 3, John preached, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, meaning Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, cleared the threshing floor, and to gather the wheat into the barn and burn, burn with an unquenchable fire, that chaff. So on the one hand, yes, Jesus is fulfilling the miracles through the Holy Spirit, right? He's fulfilling these things and seeing these, but not so much on the burning part. Not so much on the, on the judgment part, because Herod is still king. Romans still have firm control over the land. Religious leaders of the, of the Jews were still just as arrogant, just as whitewashed tombs as ever. And on top of that, John was still in prison, suffering, suffering unjustly. And so when he hears of these miracles, he's wondering to himself, when, when is my miracle coming? When am I getting out? So when John is asking Jesus, are you the one? To say that John was discouraged in this statement is actually uh, an understatement. That's, that's, the, that's the say the, the least. And we, we have to understand this part. Because if we don't understand this part, then we're not going to understand the, the rest of the passage. That, that this great and godly man is seeing his world completely fall down around him. He's, he's seeing his ministry as, a, as, a, as almost a waste. His life as a, as a waste. His discomfort in every part of his life a waste. And he's asking the question, why? Why is my life this way? Are you the one or should I be looking for someone else? These are questions of doubt. These are questions that are not unusual when life really gets real. When life begins to hurt. When struggles become deep. And doubt becomes deep. And unbelief becomes real. That's the first part. second part of our passage is Jesus responding. It's Jesus responding. I'm going to do these next three passages pretty quick because we'll, we'll talk about them in a few moments. It's Jesus responding to, to, to John encouraging him, speaking directly toward his doubts and unbelief, um, quoting Scripture, doing miracles. Uh, the third part of our passage is, um, is when Jesus then turns to the crowd after the disciples of John leave, and he validates the, the person, the kind of person John is in his ministry. He speaks very strong language about John one example is not just any prophet. He's a great prophet. The greatest. The greatest of all Old Testament prophets, greater than Moses, greater than Isaiah, greater than Malachi, Micah, 
so on and so forth. The greatest of all prophets. And then there's the fourth part of our passage where, where then Jesus addresses those who are in the crowd. He addresses those who are, who are in the crowd and He exposes this, this really deep, perverse unbelief. And He serves it as a warning to us. So John's unbelief, not, not a complete abandonment of the Gospel, that's not what we're saying here, not, not even skepticism. He, he, he was a believer, but things had happened to him. His experience had brought him to this point that caused his faith to, to shake, to doubt. And that can, and that does, happen to us. You suffer long enough, you deal with pain long enough, chronically enough, lose loved ones tragically, imprisoned long enough, you will be asking the same questions as John. Am I really sure about Jesus? Do I really believe He is the one who He says He is? Maybe we might ask, what what are you doing in my life? Can I be sure of you, Jesus? So this morning, in answering these questions for us, I want to show you two big points from our passage. Two big points. That First is how Jesus helps John battle his unbelief, shows us how we are to encounter and battle our unbelief. And second, I want to share with you the warning that Jesus gives us of that there is an unbelief that just isn't doubt. We're not trusting in the promises of God, but it is an outright rejection of the need for God. A need for the Gospel. A need for the Savior. So our first point is battling unbelief in the life of the believer. So John is in prison. He spent his whole life preaching and calling Israel to, to repentance and, 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 and he was preparing the way for the Lord. Right, preparing the way for, for the Messiah. And if, if you go and read some of those early chapters of Luke and, and, and Mark and, and even John, you, you will see some amazing things that John stands up and says. I mean, n- nobody had guts like this guy did. Nobody had, had guts like, like, like John. I mean, he, he spoke in ways that, that, that make the rest of us look like children. Was strong in the faith. And yet now he is in a prison cell. So the root of John's unbelief is, is this, this shaken faith by, by not being able to figure out really what's going on and, and the things that are not jiving up. So it's a, it's a trust issue. It's a trust issue back with, with Jesus. You know, it doesn't take much for us to ask the same questions. I know I've certainly asked questions when things got difficult in my life when faith actually became something that was hard to exercise, I began to ask questions, is, is this really the life that Jesus has for me? Persecution, suffering and pain, anxiety and doubts and, and, and even fear. Is this what I'm going to deal with the rest of my life, Jesus? Is this really what you've set me up for? Maybe it's, a, for you, a long-term deep struggle with sin and temptation. And yet the root is always the same. Unbelief in the promises of who Jesus is and what He has done. 
And so just as John was asking if, if, if he should look for someone else, I mean, that's kind of what we do. We, we, we question God and we want to look somewhere else. We want to look for somewhere else. We want to look somewhere else for, for satisfaction. And we've got to say this about John. This is a good thing. This is the positive thing about this. We've got to say something good here. At least he knew the right thing to do. Right? Didn't he have the right thing to do? That, that when you doubt Jesus, when you doubt the promises of Jesus, when you doubt the, the life that he has given you, and the, the, when, when God's providence is dark and difficult to walk through, when there's unbelief and fear about what God is doing in your life, do you know where to go? Do you know who to ask? Where do you go? Where John went to Jesus. John went straight to Jesus. And, and guess what? Jesus is not afraid of our questions. Jesus is not afraid of our unbelief and our doubts and our fears. We can, that's why he says, you can cast them upon me. You can give them to me. These things are not uncommon and they're not something that he can't handle. And I love what John did. John couldn't go himself, so he sent someone. I'm going to get to Jesus one way or another. Praise God for the Holy Spirit, huh? And how does Jesus respond to John's question? Does he get angry? Does he get upset that even John is doubting me? Can anybody just trust me? No, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get anxious himself. He doesn't get fearful himself. He doesn't lose his disbelief in John. In fact, Jesus doesn't even begin with words, does he? He simply acts. And he, and he acts in, in, in all the ways we've seen Jesus act throughout Luke, hasn't he? He heals he restores blind, those who are blind their sight. People who are diseased and plagued. People who are, who are uh, riddled with evil spirits, he, he set free. And then he speaks. And then he speaks and he, and he says, Go tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached. To them. So let me show, share with you what Jesus is doing here. He does all the miracles to show I'm the Messiah. I have all authority to do these things. He does these miracles. And then in chapter 22, he's quoting different passages. When he speaks to them, he's quoting different passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 26, Isaiah 29. 35 and 61. And he quotes these to him because, because John, he knows the Bible. John knows the Word of God, and John especially knows Isaiah. That's his ministry. He's the forerunner. He knows what the Messiah is. He knows what the Messiah is going to do. Especially verse Isaiah 35 that describes what the Messiah is going to do. Isaiah 61 describes what the Messiah is going to do. In fact, Isaiah 61, back in Luke chapter 4, is the exact same passage that Jesus proclaimed in the synagogue in his hometown. 
that this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And that in my future ministry, my ministry to come, you're going to see that I am he. I'm that guy. And when you put all those things together about what Jesus did and what he is saying, this is how Jesus is battling unbelief. Let me add something to this real quick. In Isaiah 61, the passage that he quotes in the synagogue, there's one verse that he says that, that he doesn't quote to, his disciples, to John's disciples. He says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And I think John would have took notice of this. Why? 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 I, I'm, I'm literally a captive here, Jesus. I'm, I'm waiting for my prison break here. I'm waiting for my, my freedom. So why did Jesus heal the blind, the deaf, the lepers? He raised the dead. But why didn't he set the prisoners free? And this is why. Because this is where the cross comes in. Because this is where the cross comes in. Jesus was going to have to die before he could set those captives free. Jesus would have to die before we could set those captives free. So what is he calling John to do? What is he calling us to do? He is calling us to believe. To have faith. To have faith in the future promises of God. Do you hear that? How do we battle unbelief? We have faith in the future promises of God. He says, John, I... You have to trust. You have to trust me. And that's exactly what we have to do in battling our doubts and our fears and battling unbelief is that we have to trust and rest in what Jesus is doing in our lives. And we can't see, but He does. This is how he answers our, our same doubts and questions and unbelief. Look at the Word of God. Look what I have done. Look at the cross. Look at my resurrection. Be certain that I am the Messiah and that this life is not it. This Christmas is not it. But I am. You can follow me no matter what. No matter your circumstances, no matter your doubts, your fears, you can follow me. You can look to me, John, Ben. And this is what Jesus sends back with John's disciples. What they saw, what they heard, the scripture. You know, sometimes we have no idea what God is doing. We have no idea what God is doing. But Jesus is saying the same thing to us. Look what I've done. Look what I've already done. Look what I've done in fulfillment of my word. Believe me. Believe me until you come to that day and you'll understand what I'm doing. Because Jesus just doesn't make claims. He fulfills the scripture. He doesn't just make promises. He fulfills them. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And he doesn't stop there. He offers a blessing to them. See that in verse 23? 
He offers him a blessing and says, you will be blessed if you don't fall away. John, you're not going to be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. You see, Jesus may not always fit our expectations on what we think and how life should go, does he? He doesn't do that. But we can always remain close to him and knowing that we, we will never be disappointed if we're trusting in Christ, if we're looking to him alone. And then he does something amazing. So the disciples leave, John's disciples leave, head back to John. And Jesus turns to the crowd in verses 24 through 28. He brags on John. I mean, he just brags on John. Says some pretty amazing things, right? He says, what, is it, what does he say here? He says, he says what, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Speaking of John, right? Did, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, John's not weak. What, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Is that a joke, right? Behold, those are people who are dressed in splendid clothing. They live in luxury and are in king's court. What he's saying is the meaning they're soft. John's not. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. This is he whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face to prepare before you. I will tell you among those born among women, there's none greater than John. Yet those who are in the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John was a man's man. John was not weak. John was not frail. John didn't in, in, enjoy any of the comforts of this world. Not, not a one. And, and you want to know why? He didn't enjoy any of the comforts of this world because John wanted to owe nobody nothing. I owe you nothing. And he wanted to owe anything nothing. Like he wanted to owe nothing to anybody and he didn't want to serve any comforts but the Lord. He was more than a prophet, fulfilling the prophecy of the messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. And according to Jesus, except for himself, John was the greatest man who have ever lived. Now I want you to see the kindness that Jesus is doing here. John's faith is weak, yes. This is not John's finest and bravest hour. And yet Jesus brags on John to the crowd, saying that there has never been a man who walked the face of the earth greater than John the Baptist. He's my cousin. He is my forerunner. This, that man, he is faithful. He is a man of integrity. He is fearless. He is bold. He tells people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. John was God's man. But at the, verse, at the end of verse 28, what, does Jesus, what Jesus does here, not only for John, I'm bragging on him, gives us a picture of what Jesus is going to do for us. He gives us a picture of what Jesus is going to do for us. He is going to brag on us, those who are in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, that although we are weary in this world now, even on Judgment Day, if we have been justified in Christ Christ himself will stand before the throne of God and brag on us. He will say these things of us. And if John heard these words, we, we have no reason to believe he did, and if John heard these words that Jesus was saying about him, 
I think John would be embarrassed, wouldn't he? He would say of Paul, not me, but Christ. I don't deserve this, and same thing with us. And when Jesus brags on us in this, in this way, we're going to say the same things, that I do not deserve such recognition. And yet this is a picture of our justification. This is a picture of our justification and our vindication for everyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is not that our faith is great, but it is that our Savior is great. He is kinder to us than we deserve. And this will be all of our experience if you're in Christ on that day. That day, what would, what would have been a day of wrath and calamity and damnation is going to be a day of great kindness and grace to the people of God. And it's not our goodness and greatness why we are vindicated and justified. It will be all about His goodness and His greatness and His grace. And He is going to be kinder to us than, than we deserve. I can't fathom. In this life, in this frail body, in flesh, I cannot fathom my perfect Savior standing before God the Father saying these things of me. But what grace. Here is our greatest weapon then of battling against unbelief. See the glory. See the mercy. See the grace. See the kindness of our Savior. That because of His greatness, He has made you great. Because of His greatness, He has made you are great. So when you are struggling, when you are weak, when you are doubting, there is one thing you can be for sure that whatever it is, whatever He is, is happening in our life, He is doing it. And that He, whatever it is, that in every circumstance, He will be kinder. He will be more merciful. He will be more gracious to you than you can ever dream. Much more kinder than we will be to ourselves. That in our worst nightmare, He's going to be kind. This, my brothers and sisters, is how we battle unbelief as believers. We see what Christ has done. We trust in His work. We look at the Scripture. We know Him. We, we learn Him. We trust in what he is, he is doing. And then we believe the promises, the things that He has said about us and that He has proclaimed over us, not because of ourselves, but because of His greatness. And that brings us to the second point. The unbelief of the unbeliever. The unbelief of the unbeliever. So the people respond then. You see in verse 29, it's kind of this parenthetical phrase there of, of, the, of the people's response when he says these big things about John. There's a reaction of the crowd. For some of them, the tax collectors, and, and as we know, the sinners... What do they say? They, they declare. Like they just declare out because they love John. They love Jesus. They've been baptized. They've been, they've been humbled by, by the grace of Christ. And they cry out, God is just. And in my repentance, God is just. And yet then there's this saddest statement 
of almost all time of another group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the lawyers, whom, whom we wouldn't expect anything less at this point, would we? What does it say? It says that they rejected the purpose of God. They rejected the purposes of God for themselves. By what? By not being baptized. Excuse me, what, what does that mean? What, what, is, what does that mean? In this, in this terrifying, terrifying phrase, rejecting the purpose of God for themselves and not having been baptized, it means that they have rejected John's baptism. What was John's baptism? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It means that they rejected any need for a Savior. They rejected any notion that they themselves needed repentance. I, I got nothing to repent over. I've done nothing wrong. Or at least for me to humble myself and walk into a dirty river baptized by that demon-possessed guy. What a terrifying statement. What a terrifying indictment by the Word of God on these, on these men. And this unbelief is not, just, is not the same unbelief as John. It's an unbelief that rejects God and all of His purposes. It's an unbelief that, that declares God as being unjust. Not just, but that God was unjust. Pharisees, they prided themselves in keeping of the law. They were content to rest their hope and their salvation on their own merits. They didn't claim to be perfect or to keep the law perfectly, but sufficient. Good enough. Their opinion was that they were not the problem. God then would have to accept them as they were. Good enough. So they rejected John's baptism. So what does this kind of unbelief look like? What are the marks of this kind of unbelief? Well, let me give you four quickly of what this unbelief looks like. First one, I think it looks like familiarity. First, I think it looks like familiarity. What can blind us from our unbelief? What, what can blind us from our unbelief? Well, I think it's familiarity. I think with our own experiences with Christianity, we have this professional uh, familiarity with Christianity that, that everything we do week in and week out at, the, at, at church services, this familiarity can blind us to unbelief. C.S. Lewis, writing to a friend, said, If someone has said to me, None are so unholy as those whose hands are cauterized with unholy things. Sacred things may become profane by becoming matters of the job. I've always been glad of myself that theology is not a thing that I earn my living by, he said. Certainly a great warning for us. I remember when I was starting Bible college, young man, 19 years old, I was warned by an older brother in Christ who experienced, had experience in ministry. He warned me in Bible college to not look at the Bible or not treat the Bible as another textbook. And that would be the temptation. Take God's holy word and treat it as just another textbook to learn by 
and to study by and to pass another test by or a quiz or whatever it may be, but to remember that God's word was holy and inerrant. And it's the word that gives life and breathes life into your soul. And I'm afraid that with all of our church experience, with all of our Bibles and sermons that we've heard, videos we've watched, books we've read or not read or just sit on our shelves, apps that we now have on our phones, the technology, with such great familiarity that we now have in our American evangelical uh, uh, churches that even though we are not claiming to be uh, professionals like the, the, the Pharisees, are familiar of the holy has cauterized our souls from seeing and delighting in what is glorious and joyful. And it just becomes another thing that I continue to hear each and every week. That my amens really do not really mean amen. I just say them because that's what I'm supposed to say. To mindlessly mouth words of these great songs that we sing together, to nod off during sermons, to not even know what's going on, to be ill-prepared physically and spiritually every Sunday to gather with one another. This familiarity blinds us to a deep-rooted unbelief. So then can you imagine the arrogance, the unbelief, to make the argument that with such familiarity that one can be truly spiritual. Imagine the arrogance. The second is shallowness. The shallowness that I refer to is, is, is one that I believe the enemy works hard. He works hard at continually showing Christians and teaching Christians and, and, and bombarding us to continually think light about our sin. To be shallow. John Owen once wrote, one of my favorite Puritans, he wrote, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. I'll read it again. He that hath slight thoughts of sin had never had great thoughts of God. Shallow thoughts of God, shallow theology is a reflection of our shallow thoughts on one's sins pursuing God in His Word, seeking to know Him by learning the theology and the deep things of the Word, praying to God, trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit, will bring reflection on sin. It will reveal sin in our hearts and our souls. And maybe that's the very reason why we don't want to go deep. Maybe that's why we want to be shallow. We don't want to see what's really there. But what we're seeing in the Word is that Jesus is kind even when these things come up. And that the cross is sufficient. And that even the tax collector and sinner can declare God is just. And we don't have to remain in fear and doubts. Uh, a best-selling uh, Christian author said one time, I'll just go ahead and tell you guys who it is, uh, the, the Crystal Cathedral guy, Robert Schuller, right? So you know this is going to be a good one. Uh, this is what he said. He said, Reformation theology failed to make clear that at the core of sin is the lack of self-esteem. He adds that salvation means to be permanently lifted from sin. 
and shame to self-esteem. And it's God's glorifying human need meeting constructive and creative consequences. Is that not the lie that American evangelical Christianity has believed that has brought about so much unbelief and we don't even know it. Our hearts have been cauterized almost into stone. This is rejecting unbelief. Shallow thoughts toward God, lightheartedness toward sin. Yes, Jesus came and died for our sins to free us so that we no longer would be in shame and guilt, but it's not because of our self-esteem. What an idol that is. But it's to God's glory. And it's to God's glory. And in our humility, that is where we are meant to flourish and find joy. Third is self-righteousness. What happens next after shallowness of sin and familiarity? It's just a, it's just a quick road down the line to self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is, 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 like a, is like a dangerous tumor. Right? When you first have this tumor growing in you, you really don't know it's there until it gets big enough where symptoms begin to arise. That's, that's self-righteousness. You, you don't even know it's, it's there. Sometimes we, we like to just think, well, self-righteousness is something that I'm going to be able to see and feel like a hangnail. Right? I'm going to feel that as soon as I take my first step. But that's not self-righteousness. It's, it's like the man who came to the preacher after the sermon and said, uh, I can't swallow what you said about depravity today, preacher. And the preacher, I'm not this wittingly, but this is what he said. And the preacher wittingly responded, that's all right. It's already within you. Self-righteousness leaves people sitting in their pews, hearing preaching, week in, week out, but never being moved. Never being moved to do anything. Never any, never any real response. And the fourth is sin's grip. Sin's grip. What doles our hearts to the Lord and to the Gospel more than I think anything? which brings about the greatest unbelief is playing with sin. Is being in the, in the grips with sin. The danger of playing with sin and seeing what it is within us. And sin blinds us so much from our need for a Savior because it promises to be our Savior. It promises the same things that Jesus is promising. If we do not understand our need, nothing will move us. Nothing. Whether it's the preaching of John or Jesus, as we see with the, with the Pharisees, nothing will move them except by the grace of God. This is the problem with the Pharisees. They said, I don't need John. I don't need Jesus. I have myself. Their unbelief left them 
never satisfied. And that's what Jesus says. Your unbelief leaves, always leaves you unsatisfied. And that's what the little statement there, the little saying there with the children, how they're yelling back and forth. That's what that means. The children are yelling this thing back and forth as they play in the, the street because there's one kid. You know there's always that, that one kid that never really wants to do what everybody else wants to do. Right? They kind of want to be the, the spoiled brat that wants to take their football and go home. Because I don't want to play with you. And so what these, this, this saying says is that this group was trying to include this person. And it didn't matter what they did, no matter what they offered, no matter what they brought to the table, nothing would satisfy them. And that's what Jesus is comparing this generation to. To a spoiled child who will never be satisfied. I gave you John. John came uh, uh, as an ascetic, as someone who who lived with no comfort, no nothing. I mean, he lived a much holier, greater life than you, giving up everything. And what did you call him? You called him a demon. Or demon-possessed. You called him demon-possessed. I came with joy. I came eating and drinking and hoping that would bring you to repentance. And no, what did you call me? A drunkard. A glutton. A man who eats with sinners. We don't need you. We don't need John. We don't need you. We don't need your repentance. We don't need your message. And what Jesus is showing is that this this perversity of unbelief shows that it will never be satisfied. It will never leave us satisfied. And this type of unbelief is so perverse it is so perverse because it is trying to get God to dance according to their tune. That's what the little rhyme is. Trying to get God to dance at their own tune. Trying to put God in their favor or in their debt. And God, you owe me. I did this. You, you owe me. Nothing will please the heart Listen to this statement. Nothing will please the heart that feels no sin and sees that they are not the problem. And verse 35 does say that wisdom is justified by her children. These children are, are those, those, those children who are justified by, by wisdom are the ones who actually will stand there and say, yes, I am the problem. I, I, I am the problem. My unbelief is the problem. It's then at that point we can turn to a Savior and recognize our need for Him and trust Him. That's what the tax collector says. That's what we've seen throughout, throughout Luke. You, you may not think in terms of these, but I hope that after today you can and you will. That what a grace it is to feel your deep need. Have you ever thought about that? That it is the grace of God to be able to feel how deeply needful you are of His grace? What a grace it is to to be able to stand still and just grieve over sin and sadness over our sin with tears confessing them to God. And what what a grace it is of God that He would see us justified to be able to repent And then to feel the lifted burden, the lifted burden of our sin being removed because of the perfect atoning sacrifice of Christ. 
And that's when we'll dance with joy. What grace. Then, then we're invited to dance with great joy to the, to the music of heaven, and not our own, but to the rhythms of heaven. I think this is what John chapter 1 was getting at in verses 14 through 17, and just the rejoicing of the coming of the Word of God who became flesh. It says in verse 14, And the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory of his, of his only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from Him, His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. That's the Gospel. And in every day we walk, even in our unbelief, as we battle it with these weapons that Jesus has equipped us with, and we are given grace upon grace. Unbelief and doubts are absolutely real realities for us, for all of us. But isn't it a kindness of the Lord for us to see someone like John the Baptist, someone like John the Baptist, the greatest prophet ever, who struggled with real unbelief and doubt? Well, what does that say for people like you and people like me? It says to me that I am weak, and yeah, I struggle, but in my struggle and in my weakness and in my fear and in my doubts and my anxiety, that in my unbelief, God's grace will meet me right there. That His Word and His Spirit will always be sufficient. It's okay to be not okay. It's okay to freely and openly confess that I'm not okay. But our, our Savior is great. I hope that you can see this morning God's grace in this passage. And just, as, and just as gently and tenderly and kindly as He encouraged John, this is what He's doing for us this morning. And isn't that what Christmas is about? Isn't that what Christmas is about? Recognizing our great need recognizing our great need and seeing how God has fulfilled His promises in sending His Son. Unbelief is okay. But in our unbelief, let it lead us to humility like John, like the tax collectors, and like the sinners described in our passage this morning to declare that God is just so that we will see our need for a Savior this Advent season. And in that need, there will be grace. And as John chapter 1 told us, there will be grace upon grace upon grace for each need, for each unbelief. But also let there be the warning that if we were like the Pharisees and the lawyers, rejecting the purpose of God for ourselves, rejecting humility and repentance, and if that's the case, we will miss it again. The point of Christmas this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us great kindness even today. Not leaving us hanging in our unbelief, but showing us, Lord, how to battle our unbelief. Thank you for John, the testimony of John. But we thank you most for the greatness of your son the greatness of your Son, who we look to and trust in alone as for our justification and for our vindication in this life. Help us to trust in you, Lord. 
I pray that by your Spirit, even now, to continue to expose in us unbelief. Even unbelief, Lord, that, that, that can lead into some very dark places, some very difficult things, but always keep us humble. I pray these things in your name. Amen.